You're listening to a podcast from GravityChurch.com, Lodi, California. Chip, uh, the short time we've known each other, and uh, he's a genuine guy too. He's the real deal. And I love what he's doing, love your church, love what's going on here. And not long ago, um, I came in to visit during a service with our worship leader, who I believe has helped out here, Jeff Duncan, uh, one time at least, and uh, has really enjoyed the time. So I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad to be talking about the gospel-centered life. And actually, what we're doing at our church, this is uh, number three, three three-part series, uh, uh, three out of nine, I should say, uh, nine-part series of the gospel-centered life. And what one of the core ideas that we've been talking about is basically this, that whatever your life uh, revolves around, there is something at the center of your life. Most of our lives, there is a center, and everything that goes on in our life revolves around that. And I'll give you a couple of examples. For many people, life really revolves around what other people think of them. And it's, it's an awful feeling to be in that spot when you're put in a position where all you're worried about is what other people think of you. And what happens normally and when people are in that kind of spot, they tend to thrive on other people's feedback. Now, I got to tell you, as a pastor, and I bet Jason would, would agree with me on this, a lot of times, a lot of pastors depend on what kind of feedback they get. And that's a horrible position to be in. I have struggled with that myself for a long time. But we really want to be in a spot where we really are listening to the heart of God, and it doesn't really matter what feedback we're getting. But many people live there. That's where their life is at. That's what their life revolves around, what other people think of them, and the feedback that they get. Another example would be people live around their fears. When fears are at the center of a person's life, and there are many fears that people have today, many, going bankrupt, losing jobs, losing their homes, losing friends, losing, you name it. There are a lot of fears and they can grip a person's heart and that can become the center of what their life begins to revolve around because what happens then is they tend to avoid anything that would stir up that fear in them. These are angry people, mostly. Fear drives anger in a lot of because it's a way of defending and keeping that fear at a distance. And that's no way to live. Another example might be living or letting your life revolve around a social mask, putting on a social front, putting on a facade, pretending to be somebody that you're really not all the time. And in my men's group the other day, we, we've been, we were talking about this whole thing of putting off the poser, we call it in, in our men's world, putting off this false facade. And where does it crop up most often is where people either count on you or you are look up to or there's something that might be expected of you, posing. We like to pose. We like to be the one that's in authority. We like to be the one that people might look up to instead of being authentic and real. The center of our lives determines a lot about who we are, about the decisions we will make, about the choices that we will make, and the direction our lives will take. Whatever is at the center of your life impacts your values, your beliefs, your convictions, your behavior, it determines your life. Human-centered living, when all those things I just got done describing to you, is really putting ourselves at the center of our life, in the center of our heart. When it takes first place, it distances ourselves or anyone who does that, really, from God's and what he wants for us. It distances us in our relationship from God. 
we draw away from him, not closer to him during some of those times. Human-centered living has a tendency to do that and drag us down to places where really God never intended for us to be, never intended for us to be. Instead, he wants us to have a God-centered life and what we're calling a gospel-centered life because the gospel is a God-centered message. It is the core of the scripture. It is the core of what the Bible has been building up to and we see fulfilled in the New Testament and specifically what we see in Jesus Christ. And lots of people, lots of people work a lot and they work hard at trying to pretend, trying to fake their way through life, behind a mask, behind their fears. But there is a better way. And that is what the gospel message is all about. And that's what the gospel-centered life really is, begins to, as we begin to unpack it and understand what that really means. It means it's a message that brings us into the very heart of what God wants. It brings us into the, the message of hope, of restoration, of redemption, of healing. And as Jason talked about, I like that class that he's getting started, freedom. There is freedom in the gospel. There is. Unfortunately, unfortunately, many, for many years now, the church has been adding things on to the gospel. It's not the gospel plus good works. It's not the gospel plus how hard we can strive. It's not the gospel plus anything else. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that makes a difference, that ought to be the center of our, of our world. To have a God-centered life is to have a life that is informed by the gospel message and this is really important because the gospel message is the meta-narrative of the world, of human society. It's a meta-narrative, which really simply means it is the grand story of humanity. It is the grand story of creation. It is what explains creation, is what explains man's fall from grace and his relationship with God. It is the story of how God seeks to redeem his people. It is the story that encompasses everything that we do. And when we know the story, when we have that perspective, we can put life into perspective and into order, and it begins to make sense. It begins to make sense. Central to the gospel story is Christ's death on the cross, his payment for our sins, his resurrection and his power in that, and his ascension, the ascension. Because he left you and I behind. With the Spirit of God, as we put our faith and trust in Him, the Spirit of God resides in us, in you, and in me. And that's part of what God's gospel message is all about. It's core to this one thing that I really get excited about every time I think about that. And it's irreversible change. Irreversible change. There's no going back. Once the gospel takes hold of a person's heart, I'm not talking about playing around with it, I'm not talking about it as a hobby. I'm not talking about keeping the gospel at a distance on the periphery of our lives. I'm not talking about that. And plenty of people do that. The Bible even speaks to that in the parable of the sowers. Plenty of people hear the gospel. But for whatever reason, whether they are hard-hearted towards it or they're just too busy or it's an emotional response or the worries and cares of this world rob them of that, there is good soil that the gospel message falls on. And when it does, when it does, there is no going back. I gave my life to the Lord later in life. I was a young adult. And I, had, I was messed up. I, I was off track. 
I was selfish. I was, I had other things at the center of my life. And I knew it. I knew it. And it took the death of my, my brother-in-law in a, in a, uh, homicide robbery to wait, to make me wake up to the reality that there were other things in the center of my life and I had to get myself with God in a way that made a difference. There was irreversible change in that change. There was irreversible change at that moment when I gave my heart and my life over to the Lord and there is no going back from that. There is a deep, powerful healing of the human heart when we come to that place in our lives. When we put it first place, when our lives revolve around the gospel message, it changes everything. It changes our heart, the way we think, what we will do, what we will not do, the effort we put in or not. Second Corinthians 5.17, love this verse, says this, Therefore, this is not on the PowerPoint, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. We have been talking about things that make a difference, that make us new, and it's the gospel. And in our series, we talked about several things that really shrink the gospel. And if you have that uh, diagram of the shrinking cross, yeah, there we go. I'm going to kind of look at this as we talk through it. On the top line, take a look at the top line. There is a growing awareness of God's holiness. Uh, I might start back here. There is a timeline to our lives, and at that moment of conversion is that moment we enter into that truth of the gospel. And by faith, we accept what Jesus has done for us through that message, and we take off on a path, a journey, that either it's getting larger in our lives, the gospel is increasing in its, its influence in our lives, its power in our lives, or not. And so we either have a growing awareness of God as we move along in our journey, and we have a growing awareness of our sin and our flesh and what that really means to us and how through God's word and his spirit in our life we can mediate between the two of those things and we can allow the God gospel to grow in our life. And that's what that cross in the middle represents. The things that shrink it like this, the things that tend to make that gospel smaller in our lives are things that are very common to many people. And here's just a couple. I'm just going to name just a couple. Many people tend to minimize their sin minimize the sin in their lives. No big deal. We can pretend that it doesn't exist. We can exaggerate our good works over what was really going on in our lives. We can ignore it. We can fake it. We can hide our way through it. But minimizing our sin results in the kind of graph that we see there, the gospel shrinking and staying ineffective, toying with the idea that God has done something for us. The second big reason is this, self-righteousness. Self-righteousness and shame on those who think that they are more righteous than others by pretending and by performing. By pretending and performing. Pretending that we are better than others, holding ourselves in higher esteem than others, and then performing and acting our way through our life. And even though we can minimize the gospel, even though we can make these choices and we can minimize, it's not, that's not what God intended when he gave it to us. It was not intended to stay small. It was not intended to be neutralized in our lives. It's not. Colossians 1, 3 through 6, and this is kind of our anchor verse for this whole series. It says this, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel 
that has come to you all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace and all its truth. The gospel for them never stopped growing in their lives. It never stopped growing in their lives. You could tell them by the fruit of their lives. It bared the fruit of the Spirit in their lives, and it was passed on as a result of that growth in their lives. It was active. It was not intended to be kept small in our lives. It, in, God intended it for it to grow in our lives, to grow into influence. If you can insert that other uh, diagram for me, that the one other gospel, that's the one. You already got it. That's what it was intended to do. That's a beautiful picture. And we've done a lot of talking around this diagram. That's an excellent picture of how the gospel continues to grow in a person's life when we are open to allowing it to change our lives on a daily basis. When it becomes center, when it becomes the main thing, when the main thing of our Christian faith becomes the main thing, it takes off. And our lives begin to reflect that in our relationship with God. It begins to reflect that in our understanding of who we are in our sinful nature, and it begins to reflect that in the relationships that we have with other people all around us. It does make a difference. So the question I want to ask tonight is this. How do you, how do I keep the gospel at the center of my life? How do you keep the gospel at the center of your life? Because, my brothers and sisters, you know, you know how important this is to the mission that God has called you to. The mission of our church is to help send out missionaries into the world so that they can spread the gospel message. But people don't want to hear it before they see it. I'm sure Jason has probably said very similar things and shared very similar thoughts with you. This is key to our heart. It is key to our behavior. It is key to what you are trying to do, what I am trying to do. And here's the first thing. Keeping it, keeping it real, keeping it centered, keeping it at the focal point of our lives, that our lives will revolve around it, is this. Repent of sinful life patterns. To repent of sinful life patterns. In Mark chapter 1, kind of like that chapter, he begins the chapter like this. In the beginning of the gospel, the gospel, the message, the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So right off the bat, Mark is introducing this idea of the gospel that, as he writes, the prophets had talked about john the baptist had come and was beginning to prepare the way for and in mark 1 15 it says this the time has come the time has come i want to stop right there because as i studied through this and i asked myself the question has that time come where i really got serious about what god was wanting to do in my life has the time come when we were going in one direction and we decided we were going to repent and change and go in another, has the time come for you? We each have to evaluate our own life against what God is asking us to do. And this question, this thought, is the time come, indeed, for them, had. Jesus was emerging onto the scene. And he said this, the kingdom of God is near. Repent. And believe the good news. Repent. A deep sorrow that we can accept from our personal experience, from sin, that we can actually change. And it's not only a deep sorrow that has an impact on us, 
but it also has such an impact that there's a total change in our thought and our behaviors and with respect to our life and the sin in our life, a lifestyle of repentance. Because without repentance, we get stuck in sinful patterns. (laughs) We get stuck in sinful patterns. Years ago, before I I went into ministry, I worked for a gas company uh, in New Mexico and was out in the gas fields in the oil and gas industry. And when the weather was dry, driving out on on the field roads, they were all dirt roads, it was easy. It wasn't a problem. But when the, when the weather would get really bad, uh, the, that dirt that was fairly easy to drive on got really muddy. i never seen anything quite like it. It got like glue, you know, it just really got nasty. And as the heavy trucks would go back and forth to the wellheads, they would start to wear ruts in the road. And they would get deep. The more people would travel on these roads, the deeper the ruts would get. The truth is you couldn't drive any other place but in the ruts after a while. It was the only place to go. And it got so bad that at times trucks would get stuck if they tried to get out. They couldn't. The ruts had gotten so deep they had gotten stuck. They had to call for help. They had to call for help. And you want to know something? One of the things I think when we get stuck in sinful patterns, one of the first things that we need to do is cry out to God for help. And turn the control over to him. And I don't know why. I don't know why. This is one of the hardest things for people to do. But as you know as well as I do, it is the first step. Often in life, change. Irreversible change. I'm not talking about just to make feel good change. I'm not talking about temporary change. I'm talking when we really get serious. When we really repent with deep deep sorrow and God changes our thoughts and our lives we call out to him and release control the second thing we do is we ask God to help us make a turnaround see when these trucks got stuck they couldn't turn around (laughs) it was the wildest thing they could go in one direction but if they wanted to go back they they couldn't they needed help to get out of the rut to get on a different path and to turn around so they could get back to the plant which is the third thing. Not only do we ask, admit to God that we need help and turn control over to him when we repent, we ask God to help us make a turnaround. And then we ask him to lead us on level ground <laughs> where the ruts haven't been worn in. A new, that, that translates in my mind to a new way of living, to a new life. Freedom, we call it. I call it just plain outstanding. To get out of the ruts of sin that have captured many people and got them going in one direction and cannot turn around. Can't do it. You cannot do it. Unless and until you have help. And in Psalms it says this. Teach me to do your will. For you are my God. And may your good spirit lead me on level ground. Level ground. How do I keep this gospel center in my life? to repent and to make it a lifestyle of the sinful habits and and patterns that has overcome my life and has got me going in the wrong direction. Here's the second one. Release your need to work your way into God's good grace. Release your need to work your way into God's good grace. Romans 3, 21 through 22 says this. But now, 
a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. That word faith and that word belief in the Greek are pretty pretty similar to the same idea. It means a deep trust and a rely upon. And in this case, a deep trust and rely upon Christ and what he has done. I want to read the same passage from, from the book of Rome, uh, from uh, the message. Same passage. I'm going to read a couple more verses. And I really like the way it explains it and clarifies it. But in our time, something new has been made. What Moses and the prophets witnessed to all those years had happened. The God setting things right that we read about has become Jesus setting things right for us. And not only for us, but for everyone who believes in him. For there is no difference between us and them. He's talking about the Jew and the Gentile and Romans at the NIV would clarify that. Since we've completed this long and sorry record as sinners both us and them, and prove that we are utterly incapable of living the the glorious lives God wills for us. Stop right there. There is a glory to your life. There is a glory to my life when I live by faith and I believe what God has said and trusted through the gospel. There's a glory to your life, and it is overshadowed by sinful patterns in our life. And this idea, God has really impacted me lately with this idea of this glory that we are to live from. There is nothing wrong with living from our strength. There is nothing wrong from living from the glory that is imparted to us by believing because Christ imparted to us the righteousness of the law. Apart from that, we could not earn it. We could not stand stand up to its standard. We cannot measure up to that standard. But in Christ, we have. Everything that the law required has already been made right for us in Jesus Christ. The glory of your life, the glory of my life rests on God's work in our lives. You have a glory. You have a glory to your life. I have a glory to my life when I let the gospel be the center of my life. He goes on to say, God did it for us. God did it for us. Out of the sheer generosity, he put us in right standing with himself. A pure gift. A pure gift. He got us out of the mess we were in and restored us to where he always wanted us to be. And he did it by means of Jesus Christ. Our human tendency, however, is to work for what God has already given us. (laughs) It's just human nature. To work what God has already given to us, a right standing before God. I don't have to work at earning a right standing or a right relationship with God anymore. Anymore. And neither do you. The times of challenge and sorrow and pain and suffering, they tend to get a person to thinking that maybe, that maybe they've lost that relationship with God. And so many go into hyper works mode. Life is up and down. Unfortunately, there's more downs than ups. And maybe I, I, when we get into that work note mode, we begin to think, well, maybe I just need to go to church more often. Maybe I just need to work at more Bible study. Or maybe I just need to show up every time the doors are open. And perhaps I need to earn 
my way out of this mess that I'm in and this experience that I'm going through. Or I need to take on more. I need to work harder. It's a works theology that most tend to lean into when things go awry because we want to work our way out of the things that God has for us in our lives. And I was struck by the idea this week of, from Oswald Chamber in my utmost for his highest when he said, you know what? The peaks of our lives and the valleys, I mean the peaks and the mountaintop experiences that we have with God, they're good. Nobody can just argue with that. They're good. They're great. We want to be there most of the time. But life does not do that. That is not reality. That is not where most people live. And that begs the question, well, why? How come? Am I not doing something right? Am I, am I wrong in my approach? Do I have to do more to earn my way out? And to, It's not so much that we earn a way out. But I want to stay out. I don't want to go back in the valleys. I don't want to come down from the mountain. As I said, we are built for the valley. For the ordinary stuff we're in. And that is where our metal is proven. Let that sink in for just a minute because when I read that, I really had to let it sink in. That makes sense. That is where most of us live 90% of the time. It's through the ordinary, everyday stuff. I don't have to work my way out of that. I need to allow God to help me work my way through that. Because he's not looking for me to ask the question, why? It's not why, it's why not. The deeper understanding of those times is a closer walk with God through those times. God is looking for more intimacy then, not less. And I've been meditating on this thought for about a week now because I see heartache everywhere I go, don't you? I mean, I see heartache everywhere I go. And last week I had a chance to spend a couple of days with, with the Iraq, some, some wounded warriors from Iraq, the, uh, the war there. And I, I got to know a couple of them just simply by asking them a little bit about themselves and their story of their life. And in particular, the story that brought them to this particular gathering of soldiers and warriors and who were all wounded. Deeply. And I couldn't get away from it all week. I just couldn't shake this thought in my head. And I, I almost, almost, <laughs> almost got discouraged with the church over it. Because this is the question I ask myself. We fuss sometimes. The church fusses over so much. And sometimes church people fight over so much that has absolutely no connection to real life. None. Zero. And then this is what God spoke into my heart. I'm right. I'm right. There's a lot that goes on in the church that we fuss over. There's a lot that church people fight over. And it has absolutely nothing to do with real life. But guess what? The gospel does. The gospel does. And when people put aside their preferences, 
and let the gospel be the center of their lives and it starts to revolve around what God wants and is doing, people will notice that. People will want to sign up for that. We do have something to offer a hurting world. We do have something to offer people who are down and out, truly down and out, who are broken, who are wounded, who are needy. And it is this, it is the gospel. So we are apt to think that everything that happens to us, Oswald Chambers goes on to say, is meant to be useful to teach us something. It is, it is true, but it is also used to turn into something better than teaching, into character, into the character that the gospel can shape in our lives. So here, here's what I want you to know. I don't have to work harder. When I'm in those spots in my life, I don't. I don't have to become more than I already am for God to love me any more than he already does. I don't have to try harder. I don't have to work at it anymore. Because in Christ, it is already done. It is a done deal. And the cross in my life, and I pray to God, and I hope you do too, that it grows with intensity and power and strength and vitality and clarity and discernment and wisdom in my life. Here's the third thing. Rely on your heavenly Father and enjoy the benefits of being part of his household. Galatians 4, 4 through 7 says this. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law, God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us into his very, as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave by God's own, but no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you, you are his child, God has made you his heir. A legal, he, we have the rights, all the rights and all the, that God has for us are ours. One of the major benefits of being a child of God is that I am under the law of grace and no longer under the letter of the law. I am the beloved son. You are a beloved son, men. Women, you are a beloved daughter of the living God, your heavenly father. And we have all the rights and all the privileges associated with that. We are his heirs. We are legal in his eyes. I was reminded of how important this really is in the movie The Blind Side. How many of you have seen The Blind Side? It's, it was an awesome movie. I, I, I really enjoyed that movie. But the whole movie is really based around the idea of the Tully family adopting Michael Orr, or actually becoming his legal guardian, is what really happened. And it goes on to unfold this story of this person, this young man who was wounded and broken and a cast out and a castaway in society and how this family recognized this and brought him in and became part of who they were with all the legal rights and all the resources available to him and how they helped him get back on his feet, get educated, went to school, of course, you know the rest of the story. Now he, pray, he plays with the Baltimore Ravens. That is a story of adoption. That is our story. That is God's story, our Heavenly Father. 
He has adopted you, and he has adopted me. And we have full rights in that position. It's a great story of grace at work through the power of adoption into a family. In Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace, he says, he defines grace like this. Grace means there is nothing I can do to make God love me anymore. There is nothing I can do to make God love me anymore. In John Eldred's book, Fathered by God, he says this when he talks about God as being our heavenly father and how we've been adopted as his sons and daughters. We now have a heavenly father who is kind and strong, engaged, a father who is enough to guide you, wise enough to guide you in the way, generous enough to provide for your journey, offering to walk with you every step of the way. Every step of the way. <laughs> so, where are you? I want you, before you leave tonight, to ask and wrestle with this question with God. What is it at the center of your life? What consumes your thoughts? What is in your heart? What is it that your world revolves around? Because trust me, if it is anything but the gospel, if it's anything but Jesus Christ, it is minimized. Our lives will be minimized by what God really wants for us. It's a growing process that continues all of our lives. I want to ask the band to come on up as we get ready to take communion and spend a time in reflection and prayer. But let me just finish by saying this. How do we keep the gospel the center of our lives? We repent of our sinful patterns of our lives. We release our need to work our way into God's good grace. It's already done. And we rely on our Heavenly Father and enjoy the benefits of being part of His household because it's already there for us to have. It is all there. All we have to do is be a part of what God is doing in our life. It's that easy. And it's that hard. Let's pray. And then we'll spend some time in worship and in communion. You know how it works. You come up when you're ready. After I pray, I'm going to be down here. If somebody wants to pray... I'd welcome you to come and join me, and we'll, um, we'll spend some time with God. Let's pray. You've been listening to GravityChurch.com. 